I just want to get it on the record. We want to try to remove those obstacles that may be getting in the Where are our black politicians who are supposed to be protected? In the Justice Department's statement that it's prepared to step in with an independent investigation. Hopefully the federal government will come up with a plan. When they go low, we go high. Welcome to Real Talk, the show that's open for discussion on issues that matter to you. Here you'll find informed conversation, topics, and personalities. We'll discuss what's in the news and find out what's on the minds of some of the most thought-provoking people who make our community great and interesting. And now, the host of Real Talk, Charles Griggs. Tracy Davis represents Florida House District 13 in parts of Duval County. She has served in the Florida House of Representatives since 2016 and has become one of the most trusted voices in Florida's legislative body. Prior to being elected to public office, Davis worked for the Duval County Supervisors of Elections Office, where she would later unsuccessfully run for the seat previously occupied by her boss. Davis is constantly engaging her constituents to better understand their needs and how she can best serve the public at large. She's a down-to-earth, cool person who, like her colleagues, is currently preparing to take on the 2021 legislative session. Coming up, a conversation with Florida State Representative Tracy Davis on Real Talk. So welcome to another edition of Real Talk. My guest on this edition is the wonderful, honorable Tracy Davis, State Representative District 13 of the Thank state of Florida. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Griggs. I tell you, I don't know where you got that introduction from, but I love it. <laughs> well, Happy New Year. Same to you. Same to you. Hope Santa Claus and was good to you. There ain't no Santa Claus. Okay. Oh, Paul, you children out there listening, well, there's no Santa Claus. Okay? I want to get that out of the way right now. So uh, you got, uh, you know, you got basically, uh, what, 50 weeks to understand there's no Santa Claus. Okay. I'm so glad we have all adults listening to this. <laughs> So how are you doing? I'm doing well. Good. I'm doing well. Good. Ready, ready to get the year going. Well, we thank you for taking the time to join us so we can catch up. Um, we know that we have a brand new legislative session coming up on March 2nd, 2021. And uh, it's going to be an active year, we know, because there are so many um, variables to this year's session. And, you know, I like to try to get an update from our representatives and uh, so our, the people can know what to expect come the session. But before we get there, let's cover a few other items, okay. some of the things that are out there. Um, on January 6th, we had uh, an insurgency, no less, <laughs> at uh, the Capitol in Washington, D.C., as um, the Congress was trying to count and certify the Electoral College votes to certify uh, uh, President-elect Biden and a president uh, Vice President-elect Kamala Harris yes. uh, as the 46th President and Vice President of the United States. What are your thoughts on what happened at the Capitol? I mean, what, what were you thinking when you watched, uh, as you watched some of this unfold on television? It, it immediately, um, I was on some calls. I was doing some Zooming, and the TV was on in the other room, and I walked out, and I several phone calls that came in. And Have you seen the TV? Have you seen the TV? Mm -hmm. So I rushed over, and... You know, just watching that, I became just numb mm. and um, just speechless, you know, to sit here and have the conversation with you. It was just to watch windows being broken out and people literally going through windows and um, making a mockery 
uh, of the floor, the chamber, and just knowing the, the decorum that we have when we're in Tallahassee um, in the, the chamber. It, it was just, it was chilling and um, upsetting all at the same time. Yeah, I, it's, it's weird because one of the things I thought of when I saw the picture of the, of the, uh, the guy sitting in, at the, uh, the up on the dais yes. and, and the Senate president. Feet on the table, yes, yeah. feet on the desk. And the Senate president's chair um, at the podium. And I'm thinking about, you know, back in 1998, I was a part of, uh, oh, I'm sorry, it was in 2009, I was a part of uh, Public Health Leadership Florida. And we got a chance to visit the Capitol. And I can't tell you how much we had to go through in order to be able to walk into the chambers. Exactly. You know? And these people just walked into the chambers. Complete mockery. Yeah. Complete mockery. Mind-boggling. It it was. It really was. There's so much um, reverence when we're there and we're going through organizational session. And that's the place we're sworn in, in the the chambers in Tallahassee. And um, just to see that, to know that was our nation's capital, um, being you know, vandalized, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, again, it was just chilling. It was upsetting. Um, and I, I felt the pain, just like everyone else did through this country, just the mockery, the mockery. So what are your expectations of accountability for this? <sighs> well, I I have been told, personally, I haven't seen it myself, so that'll be the first thing I said, that, you know, people were arrested. Mm-hmm. I personally haven't seen anyone arrested. Um, I didn't see anyone thrown to the ground and arrested because I know if that crowd looked a little different, and this is my personal belief, that would have been the case. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I haven't heard of the, an, any arrests, and I'm, like I said, being told that arrests were made, but I would like to see arrests made. I would like to see the, the people that stormed the Capitol um, and, and, and went into offices, Nancy Pelosi's office, and sat as if that was where they belong um, and left threatening notes on our on our desk. I want to see those people jailed. I want to see those people arrested. Um, I want to see that. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, you mentioned that if, it, if the people people would look differently, <laughs> man, let's just face it, if they were people of color, right, based upon what we've seen uh, historically, yes. uh, that situation, many people believe that situation would have been handled differently. What kind of message do you think law enforcement um, got from what they saw. But do you think they got a message that says that said, now we know what you're talking about. You know, you think they learned anything from this? I mean, some of like we sometimes we hear what we often hear is that if you do something wrong, you know, this is how you get treated. Well, what we saw was if you people were obviously doing something wrong. wrong. They were doing a lot right. wrong. They were breaking the law all over the place and they got treated like uh, you know, it was the end of a lunch break. Right. Right. Um, to answer your question, do I think law enforcement has learned from this or, or will they take away anything from this? I have to be honest and say no. Mm-hmm. Um, just in the gestures that were there, first of all, as I was watching it, it felt like it was hours before law enforcement, groves of them even showed up. Um, it definitely was a period of time before the National Guard was activated. And then once the um, law enforcement, the additional law enforcement showed up, it was a calming, peaceful, literally walking the um, protesters, rioters um, back mm-hmm. at a distance. Um, there were, 
I barely saw any tear gas. I barely saw any aggression from mm -hmm. law enforcement. I barely saw any of that. Mm -hmm. um, and so did they learn anything? No, because if yeah. they had, they would have exhibited. Yeah. It's, it's amazing that many of us were looking forward to 2021, right, after the <laughs> 2020 that we had. Uh, and, uh, hey, you know, <laughs> got this one started off with a bang. <laughs> And right. I don't think we can go through another 2021 <laughs> or go through a 2021 like we endured a 2020. Yeah. Speaking of 2020, we have uh, been you know, still dealing with the pandemic, yes. uh, COVID-19. Um, we basically went on lockdown in this state uh, somewhere around the middle of March. March. Right. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. ever since then, uh, we've been it's been one policy change and one protocol, one standard after another, nothing really consistent um, to, you know, sort of mitigate the spread uh, we're all over the place. Um, many experts say that one of the reasons why the the numbers continue to grow and when spread continues, the pandemic continues to grow out of control <clears throat> is because we never had a top-down um, plan uh, that could be run from, you know, federal to state to local. Absolutely. Um, what are your thoughts on local, I should say, state, since you're uh, elected official for the state, state's planning, state's uh, response to COVID-19, and, you know, how do you think that it can be improved? That's a lot in that question, Charles. <laughs> <laughs> but I'll, I'll tell, tell you this. I'm, I'm, I am that public servant that when I think um, my colleagues in leadership are doing the job, I'm going to compliment them. And when I think that my uh, colleagues are not, I'm going to let you know that as well. So when the, the pandemic initially started here on a local level, I actually thought our leadership um, Curry's administration did a Mayor, really Mayor Lenny Curry, <laughs> Mayor Lenny Curry yeah, yeah. right? Did did um, a commendable job with immediately locking things down, um, implementing a, a mask mandate, which we are still under, mm -hmm. I think. Um, implementing a mask mandate and just making sure that a lot of protocols in place were in place to minimize the spread. He closed down um, the bars immediately, shut down businesses, and that was just to, I think, make sure that we had a real strong handle here in Duval on mitigating the spread. Then, as far as the state level is concerned, my disruption came when you have a governor that is not giving you um, direct action. And we never had direct action from um, our Governor DeSantis. I mean, he would put a protocol in place, he would put an executive order in place, and then a week or two later he's saying, well, your church is not an uh, essential activity or place to go. And then three weeks later, mm -hmm. the church is an essential activity. And so it was confusing. Mm -hmm. And um, I, I personally think that it increased the spread because one moment church is not an essential activity and the next moment you're telling people around Easter time, it's okay to go rush up, it's okay. Mm -hmm. When you had already gotten the, the state in a remote position and people were fine enjoying church from home, now you begin to send them in, into their churches in a dangerous situation. So the state did not handle it well, according to my opinion. Yeah, you know, people say, and many folks, uh, critics have said that uh, 
politics has <laughs> led the response. Oh, absolutely. Um, what we haven't seen uh, typically under um, a emergency or, or an outbreak scenario where you have uh, an, an, an event like this, like an event like a pandemic, and if it's health-related, you see that being led by the health sector, uh, public health in particular. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have not seen um, the public health sector leading this process. You've seen policymakers leading the process. Yes, you have. We've seen politicians. So uh, that has been one of the major criticisms from public health officials is that um, we should be operating under an, under an emerging emergency management um, lead. Yes, yeah. definitely. And would, where, which would be the incident commanders would be people from public health. Uh, that would involve or at least inform the community from a scientific standpoint on how to mitigate the spread, you know, what would the response would be. And I mean, we have that. We, yeah. we, we literally had that, unfortunately, I think, because we had the uh, Trump administration and President Trump um, felt the need to be in charge that that filtered down, especially here in Florida, because we also have a governor that follows <laughs> follows in line mm-hmm. with uh, our former President Trump. So we did have Anthony Fauci, Dr. Mm-hmm. Fauci, trying to you know direct and and give warnings and give um, protocols mm-hmm. and what should be followed. But again. Uh, for lack of a better term, he was trumped. Yeah. <laughs> but <Ba-dum-bum. laughs> Exactly. <laughs> yeah. So so obviously politics has led um, during this pandemic. How do you break through that, though? I mean, you know, we know that um, the, the people who, a lot of the people who are being impacted are people of color. Yes. Uh, who are disproportionately being impacted, just like many other um, um, negative health conditions, you know. Um, some of these... Um, deaths and the spread of the disease has been um, exacerbated by the fact that people have underlying health conditions. Right. And um, so that's a whole nother ball game right there. So it, it sort of highlights the need for additional resources to to deal with those issues. Right. Um, you know, so how do you translate that into into, you know, looking further down the road to say, Listen, we have a bigger problem than COVID. Uh, we have a health problem overall, and we need to do something about that. That's a that's a great question because at the um, beginning of this, or I guess once the state was literally shut down, um, the Legislative Black Caucus realized at that point that um, we have health disparities in the African-American community that we really need to address. Mm-hmm. And it's not about um, COVID being the <laughs> the vengeance of us. These health disparities were there beforehand. Mm-hmm. COVID um, brought it to the forefront, all of the, the health disparities that I'm talking about in African-American, obesity, hypertension. They, this, did, this pandemic brought those conditions to the forefront with African-Americans and the community as a whole. And it's definitely something we need to take hold of and address at this point. If we don't address it now, while we're in this pandemic and and living through it, then I'm not sure it will ever be addressed. But but this is our time as um, a legislative caucus 
to address these issues, outline the issues, and, and deal with them head on. We need funding in order to be able to address these issues in a, a number of our communities, and that's what we're going to ask for. Yeah, so that's the thing. So um, how do you, I mean, that's one of the, we know that going into the session that is going to be, um, you know, no, we have no money. Right. Every year we have no right. money. And so you're trying to break through uh, that, you know, that noise that says, you know, traditionally we're going to stick with uh, education. We're going to stick with uh, law enforcement. You know, we're going to, you know, we're going to fund our prisons, you know, that kind of thing. But investing in people mm-hmm. is something that is very difficult to get into the mindset of leadership. Very much so. The the great thing that I think I can share with you all and, and want to share with your audience is that in the House, we there has been a select committee on this this pandemic um, put together mm-hmm. of legislators that will examine um, some of the solutions that we can have or, or go through or the knowledge and information we've gained through COVID. Um, we have a, a number of House members that actually was um, contracted COVID. Mm-hmm. So you have a number of voices that have actually lived through this particular virus. So I with almost that feel like, com- though, I mean, that's, I, mean I, I hear what you're saying about people who lived through the virus, but mm-hmm. it's almost as if, if they didn't die, they still don't really get it, <laughs> you know? Because I've heard people, you know, some folks, I mean, they were, they were you know, they almost died. You know, they didn't almost die, but they, they got it. They may have some symptoms, mild, right. and, and in some cases severe. And they go, eh, that wasn't that bad. Okay, so, well, my colleagues aren't saying that. <laughs> <laughs> I, I definitely agree with you. I but survived. I, right? <laughs> yeah, the, the, the warrior. <laughs> I definitely agree with you. But, we, we like I said, I had a number of colleagues that were um, – you know, in ICU. So mm-hmm. it was pretty significant for the colleagues that I'm talking about. So my, my hope with that committee is, again, that because you lived through it, you you had the COVID-19, you had the coronavirus, that your idea is different. Mm-hmm. And so the main reason you're part of that select committee is that you want to find solutions. And this is the time right now with that select committee that we are able to put dollars and cents in the place okay. where it needs to well, be. Well, let's just hope when <laughs> I know when we get when we get to the point where uh, recommendations meet ideology. Yes, you guys can you all can work through whatever you know that is because challenges we may oh, have. Oh yeah, definitely yes. because because you know typically what happens is these select committees come up with some wonderful ideas. And then ideology gets in the way of them becoming real policy. Right. And you're absolutely right about that. Yeah. Um, but this is our chance, Charles. Mm-hmm. We, we, we got to push forward. And we have, to, we have to want it. We have to fight for, for it. Mm-hmm. We have to, you know, deal with the, the health disparities in African-American communities. We have to do that. Mm-hmm. This COVID-19 has taught us we cannot move past this without dealing with those issues. Definitely. Definitely. So... Um, COVID-19 was the major highlight of 2020. However, um, another major event happened in 2020, and that was the presidential elections. And uh, you, as an elected official, uh, you play a major role in what the party does, the campaigning, um, the campaign strategies, you know, how 
you move the community and motivate the community to get vote for your candidate, your ticket. Uh, how did you do? I mean, you, I mean, you, Duval is blue, right? You just and, answered the question. How, how did we do? I mean, Duval but, turned blue. Duval turned blue. So, Duval turned blue. So Duval turned blue uh, on a national level and yes. with uh, with the countywide judgeship, right? So that was Ron, awesome. Ron, Ron the People way. Waters yeah. got elected to circuit. Um, how do you translate that into, you know, other? change in the community in, in other change other races yeah. um, for the future yeah. um you know coming out of the elections that that's a that's not an easy question it, it really isn't because i i know what the difference between a presidential election and any other election means this election was it was a lot to a lot of people mm-hmm. it was Let's be honest. I'm not a fan, favorite fan of Joe Biden, mm-hmm. but I don't want to see Trump in mm-hmm. in the presidency anymore. So that was that vote. Mm-hmm. It was the votes of um, every four years people come out only to vote mm-hmm. for president. So you had that group of, of people. So you had a just, you know, a combination of a lot of different variables, like you said earlier, mm-hmm. that made Jacksonville turn blue. Mm-hmm. And and so, it, well, what's, it, what's the phrase? Um, the perfect storm? Yeah. And, and that's what turned Jacksonville blue. How do we translate this for the futures? We've got to keep people engaged. Mm-hmm. We cannot allow the next um, two, three years go dormant. We have to keep registering people. We have to keep them engaged in the party. We have to just keep them engaged in politics. And and so that's how I think you translate it for the future. But you also have to be realistic and realize that, you know, this is a presidential election. So Mm -hmm. a third of those voters are not coming back. So I I was having a conversation uh, about two weeks ago, maybe perhaps, with someone who was a Republican. Okay. And they switched parties because mm-hmm. of the president. They said they can't take it anymore. They're they out. Right. But they didn't turn Democrat. They went independent. Wow. So how do you win that voter? You know, that's a person who's on the edge. You know, they like the conservative values, right? But um, they didn't like the person. Do you do you consider you know those people as opportunity to? You know to come you know come on over to the blue side. I, I and, and do you think you were successful in converting any of those people? This I time? think we were. I think we were. I I don't think you, um, even in my own elections or campaigns, you never um, discount any voter, mm-hmm. right? Whether they're registered um, to a major party or not, mm-hmm. because as we we both know, the numbers of voters that are registering NPA are increasing, mm-hmm. and those numbers are. <laughs> becoming significant. Yes. So you definitely have to, um, you know, factor the, that voter in and work just as hard for that voter to come over co- over to a Democrat. Mm-hmm. And yeah. I, I have to be honest, I don't know if we'll ever get that person to really register in a major party yeah. once they hit, um, they resign and yeah. they don't want to be a part of a party anymore. I don't yeah. know if they'll ever re-register for a party. But a lot of the voters, a lot of the MPAs here in Duval County, I know specifically in my district, are Democratic-leaning. Mm-hmm. And so we just have to work mm-hmm. a lot harder for that voter to 
increase that Democratic leaning mm-hmm. NPA voter. Some of that comes down to the candidate too. Uh, I, yeah. Most of it. Yeah, I was asked. Yeah. Uh, I was asked. Uh, actually, it was earlier today. Uh, what type of bench do you think the Democrats have in mm-hmm. Duval County? Um, so, and and they were specific about races, um, mayoral mm-hmm. race, um, supervisor of elections, mm-hmm. um, and uh, I think that was those were the two that were that, that came to mind. But mayoral and supervisor of elections. So. What kind of bench do the Democrats have at this point? I know what, what's happening right now is that, you know. You are completely putting me on the spot. I, listen, <laughs> you don't have any names of it, you know, but you can say, hey, I think we have a strong bench or we, you know, we're still working on it. But right now, I think that the you know, Democratic Party is probably in afterglow, yes. if you know what I mean, right? Absolutely. And and Republican Party, they're, they're sitting here licking their wounds. But if you remember when Barack Obama was elected during the inauguration, the story was that during the inauguration, uh, Mitch McConnell and all those folks were in a room right. strategizing to, you know, subvert his presidency. Right. I would I would probably say that there's a lot of regrouping going on right now. You know, losing uh, two Senate seats. And the state of Georgia, they lost the state of Georgia four times. Yeah, you know, so they lost it the These first last time. Two were pretty, they lost pretty it in two recounts, yeah. and then they lost it in a runoff. <laughs> so, I mean, so I would imagine there's a lot of regrouping going on. It is. Uh, what kind of you know? So, what type of do you have a bench? Are you working on a bench? Or there's some? Or there's some people who didn't get out there this time? You're trying to. What is it? So that's a multi. That's a multi-level Let's get in it. Let's answer. Get in it. That's a answer multi-level answer. <laughs> so I, I'll I'll go back to the Republicans. For for me, are are feeling exactly what a number of of the Democrats were feeling after um, this last election, and so after meaning after going into the November election, we lost a number of seats. We lost two. Um, congressional seats. We lost five House seats. Um, and, you know, we lost literally here locally every race that a Democrat was in. So th- they're licking they, their wounds, and we're still to a certain point lick, licking ours, right? Mm-hmm. But there is also planning and strategizing going on on both sides. So um, we will have a bench to be reckoned with because that's coming from the top down. Um, we have the election of our Florida Democratic Party chair coming up soon. I have a vote in that, I'm, mm-hmm. I'm mm-hmm. <laughs> thankful to say. And so we'll be de- dealing with that um, in the next few days. So it's definitely going to start with leadership. And the change of leadership will filter itself down to give more support to these counties so, the, so then we can start winning on the local level. Mm-hmm. But we, we have to, the, the leadership has to change. We're in the midst of strategizing as well, and we, we will have a bench to, to reckon with. Okay. So d- before we leave the presidential election, I just uh, I wanted to mention that one of the things that people sort of lose sight of is that the, the national elections, this presidential election yeah. at least, is really more of an ebb and flow, right? It's it's really more of an ebb and flow. It's uh, it's not uh, a situation where one party stays in control. Right. And um, I've been voting since 1980. 
Are you aging yourself? Yeah. So, <laughs> I think it was 79, 80. So um, I didn't vote for President Carter. I'm sorry. I didn't vote President Carter in office. Okay. I was in high school when he was voted in office. Uh, but I did vote for him when he lost, right? Mm. So under in my lifetime, out of those uh, eight different individual, I think eight different individual presidents, wow. four of them have been Democrats and four of them have been Republicans. So, you know, the, it's the ebb and flow with that. So, right. so we, we sort of have to get used to change. And that's what was so, you know, extraordinary about what happened at the Capitol because people, you know, they was, you know, like they couldn't accept losing. Right. Right. So with, with that in mind. Um, but I, I think, you know, just a, a, a point to that. You're right, Charles. Exactly. Mm-hmm. But I also have to to mention to your audience that, you know, if you voted for the, the president elect, mm-hmm. Like you said, that person and that that you know particular voter was high. Yeah. The energy was high. They're mm-hmm. ecstatic. They, they were on the winning team. Mm-hmm. But seventy million people still voted yeah. for the outgoing president. Yeah, and yeah. so I mean that makes the statement itself. Um, but what happened at the Capitol was just simply unacceptable. Yeah, yeah. and and it's and it's tough because, um, you know. Trump lost the popular vote when yeah. he when he won the presidency. Right. Yet he still felt as if he he should govern as if he had a mandate. Correct. And um and with more people voting against him than voting for him, uh, that set the stage for a rocky relationship from the beginning. Yeah, and right. it was so it was exacerbated by the fact that he he don't know how to act. Right. <laughs> so, <laughs> right. So. And 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 since then since then, let's add, every other day, I receive an email of people saying, you know, with the Electoral College, the popular vote should decide who our president is. Let's change the system to where the popular vote decides who our president is. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. people are calling for that every day. Well, I doubt if that'll happen. I agree with you. you know, because but that's, a that federal, were, that's a federal issue. If that, if that were to happen, we'd never see, under this scenario, we'd never see red uh, state win again because the urban, pretty much, the, the urban communities are, you know, they carry the most votes, and so they would definitely, the popular vote would, you know, more people live in these areas than right. they do rural areas, so, right. so we would um, definitely cancel out, um, and that, and that, you know, you have to figure out how to keep a balance. Yeah, because I don't, exactly. I don't think even even people who want power, I think even Democrats who want to enjoy power, would like. To, still to have a fair shot at the other side being able to share the ideas. Right. Fair so, and yeah. equitable yeah. across the board. Absolutely. Fair, across the board. Yeah. So what about the state of Florida before we go? I mean, how, you know, how, you know, you, you, Democrats have not been able to win uh, the governor's seat back since Lawton Childs. I think I was a it's little boy when Lawton Childs was. 20 plus years. <laughs> 20 plus years. Yeah. So, um, you know, half of my lifetime. Yeah, he had that. <laughs> he had just, no comment. He actually, <laughs> and Lawton Childs actually, you know, died in office his last few days. Right. So, um, that's uh, that, and with it, 
<laughs> Democratic Party last hopes of having a, a Democratic government. <laughs> so, um, you know, what do you got? What what has to happen in Florida? Um, we understand now. Now that you know, because in the past, uh, Duval County, being a red um, county, was sort of counted on. You know, sort of was a thing. Right. Uh, and now that you know that that it, it can be blue, uh, now you have another part. You got a whack-a-mole down yeah. in South Florida. You got to deal with um, you know a culturally diverse Hispanic community. Yes. Right. Yeah. And um, because of that, that's what kept you from winning the governorship before and the presidency um, turning Florida blue in 2020. Right. Um, what do you got to do? What's on the horizon? What is the, what is the party thinking? So, again, um, it's the leadership. Mm-hmm. It, and, and right now we have um, the Democratic, the Florida Democratic Party, like I said earlier, is a few days away from choosing a new leader. And that leader is going to have to contend with that. How do we gain the the voters in Miami-Dade? How do we bring our Cuban-American friends in? How do we bring our Puerto Rican friends? The Hispanic base down in Miami is is very important to us. Mm -hmm. So with leadership... Um, you have a Cuban-American that's running for, for office. You also have several African-American women. You also have um, several other um, ethnic groups that would be great leaders. But what does the party need right now mm-hmm. is the person's question as, as we're voting for that new leadership. And can that person move the party in the right direction? Mm-hmm. Can the person... Um, raise the money that we need them to raise. Can that person be as as inclusive across the board with um, a team that's representative of this state? Mm-hmm. And that's those are just some of the things we we haven't had. Yeah. But that leader um, determines how we so, take back this state. So one of the dilemmas of dealing with the the, co- the diversity of the needs of people across the state, especially. In a culture diverse Hispanic community, which we learned in the Democratic and in, in the uh, pres- during the presidential election, is that not all of the issues that people are looking for are actually progressive issues. They right. they are uh, moderate and in some cases conservative issues right. that need to be dealt with in a progressive way. How do you communicate that to people who uh, you know folks who voters who are like the you know I heard that you guys want to get rid of the police, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, I heard that, uh, that you know, that Democrats are socialists, <laughs> you know? Uh, so how do you get rid of that messaging uh, or kill, you know, neutralize that messaging when you know that those policies are, that are coming from, you know, that messaging is deeper than that. It's deeper than that. Right. It's, it's actually it's more, more to it than that surface. Uh, you know, defunding the police or getting rid of the police, as well as some policies that may seem to be socialist, which, you know, some cultures may identify as right. regressive. Um, how do you, and oppressive, so how do you message that and still maintain a progressive outlook to policy and ideology? We cannot have one message take us over, and you are absolutely right. I, um, was was that person after the election? I would I couldn't get a static about it mm-hmm. because I knew 
those messages of defund the police and that Democrats are socialists had really lost us seats. Mm -hmm. it, those messages cost us dearly mm -hmm. from our congressional seats to our uh, House seats that we lost, as well as our local races here. Mm -hmm. the, the issue and the challenge we have is creating our messaging being solid in our messaging and responding mm -hmm. to messages like that. Mm -hmm. and, and what happened and what continues to happen, Charles, is we don't respond. Yeah. We lost those seats and those races the way we did. It's because we didn't respond. Mm -hmm. We didn't respond on a national level. We didn't respond on a state level. And we didn't respond on a local level. Yeah. And so as a result of not being strong in our messaging, we lost. Yeah. We lost, but it has to. We have to have a leader um, for this party that identifies our messaging. We we adjust it when we need to, and we respond when we get messages from our, our Republican counterparts mm -hmm. that are identifying us, it, like you said. It's going to be anxious. I'm anxious to see how how this works because it's a lot it, of work for this a, party chair. It's it, a lot of work. In a few short days, people will be you know as soon as the uh, new president gets sworn in, Joe Biden gets sworn in, before he sits in the seat in the Oval Office, you know, people are strategizing for midterms. Exactly. So, exactly. Uh, and, and those are going to be the issues that are going to determine whether or not you keep a majority in the House and in the Senate. We have to respond yeah. and we have to um, convince our voters, mm -hmm. that we are not socialists, mm -hmm. that we believe in funding the police. Mm -hmm. And you're right, the strategy happens as soon as he takes office. Yeah, probably before then. So, <laughs> yeah. Right. So uh, last but not least, and we'll try to get through this uh, quick so I can get you out of here. Uh, legislative session's coming up yeah. March 2nd. Um, what are your priorities? <laughs> you're going to make me giggle. <laughs> <laughs> Prior conversation. <laughs> so I, I do have a few things. I'm always um I had a lot of success. Even with, if you don't, um, you know, like you some some things you're passionate about. What are you passionate about this session? So um I, I really got involved um last session and um we were able to pass Donna's law. Mm -hmm. And so that's the um a sexual assault deal where um any sexual assault that's committed on um, young person, 18 and under, the statute of limitations was completely removed. So that was huge. So we'll be involved in some more sexual assault legislation that we're going to go for this time. Um, also dealing with the idea of an Office of Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion for the state. Really? Um, we're working with... Uh, Do tell. Yeah, yeah. I've been working <laughs> with Senator Berman um, on that. And, and we just want to include an office that um, makes the governor's office aware of, of racial issues um, and inequalities that are happening throughout the state and various agencies. Mm -hmm. And so we've outlined the requirements of what that office will do. We've outlined the requirements of the chief off for that office, what they will need. And so we're, that's one I'm really excited about. So we're okay. going to work hard on that. And we're in that climate. We're in um, a climate where we, I think government offices need to have someone that their sole purpose mm -hmm. is to ensure that um, we have racial equality across the board. Mm -hmm. And so we're really excited about that one. Yeah. There used to be back in, uh, I would say, in the late 80s, maybe early, mid-90s, uh, it was during the Lawton Childs administration, mm -hmm. I believe. Um, 
they used to be, the governor's office used to have an office of um, a small and minority business advocate. Mm, yes. And, you know, that office sort of made sure that the, that the governor's office was being a champion for minority businesses. Yes, and thanks to Governor Scott, that all went away. Oh. <laughs> I just add that. So, right. but to know that um, the Legislative Black Caucus is beginning to look into some of the supplier diversity mm -hmm. and how um, contracts are gained by a number of our small and minority mm -hmm. businesses, as well as women owned and veteran businesses. Gained or gained? I'm not sure. <laughs> That's a joke. I'm, <laughs> I'm like, I'm not sure what I just said. <laughs> No, but, uh, you know, gain would be, but gaming the system. So yeah. I understand, I understand what you, what you meant, but I wanted to make a point. You were trying to make a point. And of course, I, you know, coming from my background, we're going to be looking at some elections, election legislation dealing with, um. Oh, I'm sure you're going to be looking at some election yeah, legislation. Yeah, we are. This COVID-19, you know, highlighted a number of things, um. We were able to place drop boxes at all of the, you know, polling locations during early voting as well as election day. Um, we don't want that to be a, a one-time issue. We want that to be standard. What is so wrong with making it easier for more people to vote? And that is the idea. That that is the idea. Easier to register online. Um, it just should be less complicated. So what, I don't understand. I don't either, Charles. What's the? <laughs> I, I don't either. Do we it don't doesn't want cost anyone anything. But I don't. We do want people to participate in the democracy. We absolutely right? do. We absolutely so. do. Okay. And so I think the um, more we shout mm -hmm. <laughs> and and identify the weaknesses that we had that again COVID nineteen brought up. Um, this this is the, the idea of the the election legislation. Let's make it so accessible that. Everyone has the opportunity for it. it. It just has to be easy. Yeah. Yeah, maybe perhaps some type of high school curriculum or something where kids, you know, sort of automatically get an opportunity to register to vote before as, well, they, as they graduate. I'm glad you said that because 16-year-olds can register. Okay. They can pre-register right now. Mm -hmm. And so, but sometimes we get... I'm literally caught into a system where the elections office can't get to the campus because they're having something on, something on campus. So there has to be more of a partnership between the elections office and the Duval County public school system mm -hmm. to ensure the, the Department of Education. Department where, of well, it's in statute. Yeah. So this is this is nothing we're just talking about. This is in statute that um, students at the age of 16 can pre-register, and then they can vote at 18. But whatever the partnership is, like you said, whether it's Department of Education, and, you know, our public schools here, um, all of our schools, the partnership has to be there to ensure that the elections office is coming in to register those students. Great. More voices, more engagement. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. So they can pre-register at 16, 17, and vote at 18. The Honorable Tracy Davis. Florida House, House of Representatives, State House of Representatives, District 13. Thank you for being our guest today. Thank you for the opportunity, Charles. I had a great time. Me too. Thank okay. you. And that's our show. Special thank you to State Representative Tracy Davis for being so chill during our conversation. Our Real Talk producer is Charles Landon Griggs. Please be sure to say hey to him out there on the West Coast. And I'm Charles Griggs. And remember, there's always time 
for Real Talk. Have a great day. Thank you for joining us on this edition of Real Talk and subscribe to our show on iTunes or the usual podcast sites. You can write Real Talk at speaktous at 8wgroup.com and tell us who you'd like to hear on a future interview. Until next time, remember, on Real Talk, we are always open for discussion.